0: Um, the name that is most associated with this particular uh, luminary of Hasidus is a name which is drawn from the Hasidic work or commentary which bears his name Degel Machne Ephraim, which is drawn from a Pasuk in the Torah where it speaks about the different camps uh, that traveled through the desert one of those camps there were four camps there was the Mahna Yehuda um, and one of them was the Machne Ephraim Degel Machne Ephraim literally means the flag of the camp of Ephraim the author of this Sefer was uh, Rab uh, Rab Moshe Chaim Ephraim his name was Moshe Chaim Ephraim. And um, because of the fact that in Machane Ephraim, the first two letters of Machane are Moshe and, Ephraim, and the and uh, the last word is Ephraim in total, um, he uh, named his sefer the Degel machne Ephraim. The uh, Baal Shem Tov, of whom we have spoken about earlier had two children. He had a son and a daughter. The daughter's name was Odl. Odl was married to Rabbi Yechiel. This Rabbi Yechiel was called the Deitch because he was uh, apparently hailed from... Um, from, the, uh, from Ashkenaz, uh, either Germany or, the, or those environs. And uh, the Baal Shem took him as his son-in-law, and uh, Rabbi Yechiel and Odel had two sons. The older one was Rabbi Moshe Ephraim, and the second one was Rabbi Reburg, who ultimately came to be known as Rabbi the Rebbe of Mezbiz, because he settled in his grandfather's uh, city, where that's where the Balshemah Kodesh was um, uh, spent. The, uh, the 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 strongest part, the, uh, the the most forceful part of his uh, of of his Hasidic leadership. Uh Rebaruch settled there and um was known by as the Reb Rabug of Mejbiz. Uh the Reb was a very a, a very colorful person and um, uh there, there is a great deal of um, of literature on the Rebrabar. The Rebecca the Meshachayim Ephraim, the older brother, uh, was uh, comparatively speaking, that is, compared to his brother, Rebaruch, was a very quiet and uh, retiring individual, Um, was uh, not nearly as, uh, as anywhere near as controversial, um, as sharp, as, as, Uh, imposing a figure as his brother. Nonetheless, in contrast to his brother, the Degel has left us as his legacy, one of the Sivre Chasidus, which probably, with a single exception of the Tildus, which we spoke about a number of weeks ago, is uh, one of the Mikhail Svarim, it's one of the the um, classic um original Svarim which record the the tales of the Balsham Tov. so that as the Balsham Tov's grandchild um he uh, became the um um probably the um, the second best known uh, record of the the um, commentaries and the and the uh, philosophy of the of the founder of civic of the Shem Tov. um there are very there are very few pages of the Degel which go by without mention of the Baal Shem and um And as such it is a Sefer which is hallowed as one of the uh, one of the um, the cornerstones of Rebbe left very little in writing. Most of the things are uh uh, things which are repeated in his name, but uh, the Degel did leave us a um, a very important legacy in the in this Degel Machnafray. The Degel was born somewhere about uh, the early 1740s, and um, when he was a youngster, somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight or ten years old, the Baal Shem Tov referred to him in a letter which he sent to his brother in law to Gashn Kitaver, the Balshemov referred to him as Ilui Godel Betachlis Halimud, as a great genius in the uh, in the fullest extent of the study of the Telem. So, the Shem Tov himself had already passed judgment on, uh, on, the, on the Degel as a youngster, as being someone who was destined to greatness. In some of the somewhat secular um, biographies of Chasidus, the Degel is not treated with a great deal of respect. Uh, he is seen as um, as someone who was not terribly original a, a person who did not draw a very great following um, and there are all kinds of uh innuendos all kinds of um, uh, very thinly veiled uh critical critical comments about the dago uh, but the dago is in uh, in Hasidic circles is one of the uh, the great luminaries, and all of the secular um, and somewhat uh, liberal commentators, notwithstanding, the Degel uh, is uh, is a person upon whom the Teiras Hasidus stands. Um, uh, he was uh, very young when the Baal Shem Tov passed away. and uh, he was probably something of uh, in the area of about uh, 15 or 18 years old. Nonetheless, because of his genius, he did record a great deal and absorbed a great deal, which he faithfully recorded subsequently in the Sefa. Um, he was a, um, a very uh, strong disciple of the Tehildes, and um, and also was a student of the great Magid, who was the successor to the Bar He does somehow refer to the Toldos with greater deference than he does to the Magid. The um, the Degel became. He, became, he accepted the post of being a rabbi in a city called Sedelkov, which is, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the, the uh, Russian map, is not too far from Shepetivka. Now that will help all of you place where this was. Apparently it was a fairly modest-sized Jewish community, uh, but once he became rov and Sedelkov he remained there for the rest of his life so again in contrast to some of the other Hasidic leaders who kind of uh, who were Rabbanim in a variety of different places once the Dego settled in that's where he stayed he passed away somewhere around the year 1800 Roughly about uh, in his mid fifties, and I will tell you a little bit about that uh, shortly. Um, The um, one of the The uh, popular stories about um, the Dego is the fact that he was quite content to live in poverty, so as not to have to uh, disturb his aveda, his uh, his his service and his his studies. Uh, The uh, community of Sadelkov was um, was very respectful of him, but not in uh, in dollars and cents. And he did live a very Spartan exi- existence. On one occasion his brother visited him, Reburg. Reberg was inclined to travel through the countryside to visit communities where uh, he would spread the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, where he had his followers, and where he would he would also collect funds. Uh, which he would distribute to charity, and uh, ostensibly which allowed him also to support himself. On one occasion he was heir of Shabbos, he was in one of the communities, one of the villages close to Sedelkov, and so he um, seized the opportunity to spend Shabbos with his brother, and he, uh, he went off to Sedelkov to be Shabbos with the Dego when uh, they sat down to the Shabbos table, Rebaruch uh, noticed that the um, candelabra upon which uh, the Rebetzin of his, uh, his brother, upon which he lit the Shabbos candles, were made of uh, of uh, they were clay, or there they, they were they were uh, extremely. Um, uh, they, they were very cheap. It was um, to the Rebbech was very embarrassed by it all, so he turned to his brothers and said to them, "It's time that you had the Kavich that you had silver candelabra." To which the Dego responded. I, I would much rather that my candelabra were made of this uh, this this very uh, cheap material um, and I could be home pursuing my uh, my studies and my uh, my prayers rather than uh, travel around the countryside, and not be home and have candelabra of silver so he um, he took a a shot at his brother who uh, was the the traveler and and who did have the the, the silver candelabra and he said I'd I'd rather stay home and do my thing and have the um, the cheaper candelabra Um, I heard from my father in law blessed memory and I can't remember in whose name he repeated this but it uh, he did repeat it in in someone's name so that the uh, this particular anecdote has uh is is a uh, very reliable um, has a very reliable pedigree that um the year in which the the Degel passed away there was a srefa, there was a fire which consumed his his home and uh, when he came back to view the uh, the damage he was very very downcast since he was not a person who either owned a great deal that mattered to him and materially materialistically speaking uh, the people were very puzzled about the fact that he was downcast and so they approached him and asked him what it was that he was so disturbed about and uh, he said to them let me tell you he said when I was the the, the, the in generally was not a he was a very physically speaking he was a very fragile person and and, uh, most of his life was 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 weak and uh, and very frequently in ill health so he said that when he related the following incident that when he was a a youngster that because of his his very fragile state of health his very delicate state of health that his grandfather the Baal Shem HaKodesh whenever he would travel any place would take him along because he wanted Constantly to watch over him, and he didn't want to let him out of his sight. So he said, on one occasion, uh, his uh, grandfather took him, and uh, they traveled. And it was um, just before the holiday of Sukkot, and they they ended up spending Sukkot in some distant community. The community in which they ended up spending this this uh, the holiday of Sukkot. Was in the main a misnagda community. It was a community in which the Shem Tov's teachings were very much under fire, and where he had a great many uh, uh, opposers to his uh, to this this Derech uh, Nonetheless, there were uh, there were friends there, and he ended up staying at. Uh, in in the home of one of these friends and the misnagdim were constantly looking for ways to discredit him came around to uh, inspect the sukkah in which the Baal Shem Tov was uh, celebrating the holiday and um, found some uh, inconsistencies some halakhic inconsistencies in the sukkah and circulated a rumor that the sukkah in which the Baal Shema Kodesh was fulfilling the mitzvah during the course of the holiday, that it was puzzled, that it was invalid. Um, and this, this rumor, as rumors tend to do, gathered some, some steam and uh, reached the ears of the entire entourage that had accompanied the Baal Shema Kodesh to this community. And they were very distressed to learn of of this uh, uh, of this uh, criticism of this uh, slam against the uh, their uh, their mentor. The Baal Shem HaKodesh, uh, after a while, noticed the fact that everybody was kind of stressed out. And so he called one of the Chasidim over, and he said to him, "What's going on?" And so they they told them the story. They said, you "Well, know, here's what's happening. Apparently, some uh, some of these uh, Misnagdic scholars came around to examine the um, the sukkah, and they found some inconsistencies. And now everybody in town is saying that the sukkah in which." The Rebbe is saying that it's puzzled, that it's, it's invalid. So the Baal Kurdish Kodesh turned to one of the people in his, uh, in his company, I believe it was a scribe, and he said to him, do you have any Uh, parchment which you dedicated to, for the writing of a um, either for Tefillin or for mezuzah so the scribe said to him um, perhaps, let me go and check, and he returned a number of minutes later, with a piece of parchment which he had intended to use either for the purpose of writing a mezuzah or for writing film and he gave it to the Baal Shem Tov and the Baal Shem Tov put it on the table put his hands on the parchment and then put his head on his hands and the period of time passed in which the Baal Shem Tov was leaning on this uh, this parchment and uh, People who were standing around him saw that the uh, the Baal Shem HaKodesh, that the, his his face turned red, began to to uh, as it were began to, to burn, and um, after a period of time the the uh, color began to recede. The Baal Shem Tov picked up his his head and handed the piece of parchment to uh, one of the chassidim and on the piece of parchment was inscribed the following words Sukkah Zush uh, Reb Yisrael Baal Shem Tov (coughs) Uh, this Sukkah in which Reb Yisrael Baal Shem is um, sitting is uh, kosher and it was signed Matat Resh Mesifted was signed by Matat which is the name of the um, the head of the heavenly academy so it, it passed around to the Chesidim the Chesidim uh, were reassured that everything was in the best of order and the Baal Shem Tov called over his grandson, Rabbi Frian, and he handed him this piece of parchment. And he said to him, "Guard this piece of parchment, because as long as you have it in your possession, it will be a shmirah. That is, it, it will be a um, a, a source of, of kedusha, which will uh, which will stand you in good stead. It will." It will shelter you from harm. So the uh, the Degel said, all of these years, he said, I've faithfully kept this uh, piece of parchment in my possession. He said, today, the uh, I had left it in the house, and it was destroyed by the fire. So he said, nothing of the of the physical things that I own that were destroyed bother me but uh, I don't see this as a good omen and um, shortly thereafter on the 17th day of Eor, in Toph Kuf Samach the year 1800 the, the uh, Dego passed away What? Yeah, he had a lot of dreams. There's a lot of dreams that uh, that I recorded in the uh, in the seifa that he had of, of his grandfather, uh, and a variety of different um, missions to him. Um, what I'd like to do is to give you. A, a, a little bit of a sampling of the kinds of of commentaries that one is likely to find in the Degel. Um, many of uh, virtually all of the Degel's commentaries, like the tale days come to uh, enable us to understand how the words of Terah are current and timely and how if we read them correctly and interpret them properly they speak to us about ourselves about our conflicts and our tests and our challenges and our aspirations and so on but many of them are uh, the kinds of commentaries which are directed at the intensity of and the the uh, imperative of the relationship between the tzaddik, between the the central figure, between the uh, the mentor, the the uh, the saintly leader, and his chassidim, and that there is no other way in which a person can reach shleimus. There's no other way in which a person can become whole or complete unless he maintains this. Keshe, unless he maintains this kind of of um, relationship with this kind of submission to this kind of uh, total attachment to the um, the Rebbe, and in the course of that, we find in the in the Degel uh, not only counsel to the Chassid as to how he must subject himself totally to the leadership of the Rebbe but also there is a uh, a fair amount of commentary which instructs the Rebbe about his responsibility to the Chassidim Um, uh, this uh, reaches a um, um, its uh, climax in uh, the works of the Neymali Melech in the which is the second generation of of the Hasidic masters when there is a um, an enormous amount of such counsel to the uh, to the Rebbe but uh, let me just um, give you a little sampler of the uh, the Degel's approach we find in Parshas Bullock, in the words of uh, no less a uh, notorious figure than Bilam, we find that that Bilam speaks of himself um, in, uh, in in laudatory terms. He he uh, extols his virtues, and he says as follows: Asha ma'asei shakai yechaze noim he refers to himself as someone who sees visions of God. He calls God by the name Shin Yud, the name that we have on the mezuzah, on the outside of the mezuzah. Naifeu <laughs> noim, Who falls, speaks about himself, and his eyes are open, or his, uh, it, it is revealed before his eyes. Uh, the Rashi tells us that that means that the Almighty would not reveal Himself to uh, to Bilam, that He would not have any of His prophetic visions while He was standing straight, while He was standing up. That uh, the moment that He uh, began to experience this uh, His prophetic visions, that He would crumble, He would fall. His, uh, he had all of his uh, prophetic visions in, in a prostrated state. Now, Bilam is not exactly the place, not exactly the source that any of us would go if we wanted to find some sort of inspiration. And here he is, he is an arrogant individual, and he's described as a, as a person who had a ruach he was conceited, he was arrogant, he was haughty. And in his haughtiness, he describes himself as, that here he is, I am the person, he says, who's, who sees the visions of God, uh, who falls, and it is revealed before his eyes. And the Dego says if it's in the Tehra, if the Almighty recorded it, then there is something that we need to know that we are to learn from, from this, even if its source is Bilam. Because if there was no relevance to us today, if it didn't if it wasn't Tehra, if it didn't teach us today, it wouldn't be in the Tehra. Tehra is timeless. And every letter and every word and every sentence, including the utterances of, of this wicked bilam, are a source of teaching and inspiration. So, how are we to understand this? So he goes on to comment as follows. That the righteous person and I believe that each one of us will soon discover that it could mean uh, any one of us by extension, that the righteous person is an individual whose whose greatness, whose achievements, whose uh, spiritual insights give, uh, give him this access to growing and to seeing things in ways which are boundless and limitless. So as an individual grows and as their, their capacity to appreciate the um, heavenly spheres and, uh, and God's exalted um, majesty grows, an individual could be caught up in the ecstasy of, in the, in the, in the majesty of, of all that is opened before him. And as such, one can go off on their own, and one can become very, very insular. One can become very uh, preoccupied with the fact that here is this 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 great vista, this unlimited horizon of spiritual revelation that is open to them, and it is uh, it's exciting, and it is a journey of. of uh, of ecstasy, and, and and why should they? Why should they come down from this this um, heavenly summit? So he says. Nonetheless, that position is not defensible, and there is an obligation. And those people who behold greatness, who understand the. Um, the finer, the greater um, spiritual um, mysteries of life to bring these to the attention of to bring these within the experience of uh, anyone and everyone who he can possibly touch now that mandates that the person has to stop Mandates that the person cannot just constantly entertain the the luxury of of moving higher and higher in their studies and in their um, in their reflections they have to they have to come down and they have to find ways to interpret what they have learned and introduce it into the lives of of uh, the um, the plain folk to make the uh, the mountains accessible to those people who uh, are just learning the basic rudiments of of climbing when the almighty created the world and he made his pronouncements, the ten utterances which brought the world into being at the Almighty's command, the world began to develop, and it developed in such a way that it took, it drew upon the Almighty's um, the uh, the Almighty's non-corporeal, his incorpore- incorporeality. And eventually, by virtue of all of the distances and all of the, the, uh, the uh, barriers which uh, the Almighty brought into being to obscure His, um, His light, allowed for something ultimately to come into being which had physicality. Uh, So we occupy a world in which the Almighty's signature is obscured, in which the Almighty's presence is not readily discernible. We see things independent of God. Indeed, there is such a thing as evil, which is um, contrary to godliness and the divine plan. Now the Almighty, because His word is limitless, Viewed this unfolding of creation and saw that if it were to continue to build with barriers and, and to obscure his, his light and his presence that it would reach a point where there would be such darkness such obscurity that no being could um, discern any light therein, and as such, it would be refractory. It would be beyond reclamation. No one would be able to take these elements of creation and um, discover the dark, the uh, the light, the spark in the darkness, to uh, sublimate it, to elevate it and restore it to godliness. Now, the the purpose of creation is that there would be choice and that that choice would be able to be exercised in such a way that even in this material world that man would be able to transform the physical and the the, um, materialistic parts of it into instruments that would become Um, a uh, a vehicle to the divine service and as such that, that the divine presence could be revealed upon it, conferred upon it, that it would become, as it were, an altar to the Almighty. So the Almighty proclaimed enough. The Almighty stopped creation from going any further. Because had it gone any further, it would be beyond reclamation, beyond redemption. It would be too dark the name which represents that cessation, that um, unfolding away from God is the name Shin Dalaj Yud which carries within it the word die, meaning enough. So the Almighty proclaimed His name, Shin Dalaj Yud, and said enough. No further. And on that basis, the boundaries to creation, were fixed. So it is this name, Shindalad Yud, which represents the understanding that everything which is has been created such that mankind can use it and transform it into an, an instrument and a vehicle to spiritual growth. So, if there is a, a a person of greatness, a person who's who is a um, a servant of the Almighty, in such a way that the heavens are revealed before him, and this individual is is swept away in this this uh, his divine reflections and his spiritual reflections, and is tempted. To uh, become a reclusive, to to uh, uh, indulge his his own spiritual pursuits without including anybody else, or without trying to interpret those those heavenly spheres and and make them accessible in whichever way to his fellow Jews, when he takes a look at the name Shindal Yud, he is immediately convinced that the purpose of um, of the Jew in this world is that sh- the Almighty should have his abode that he, uh, the Almighty should be comfortable in all of the uh, recesses of, of existence that he can confer God everywhere that uh, it's not it wasn't intended for him to be to be somewhere in the in the heavenly spheres, but that it is intended that he should use everything that he has learned to bring the Almighty into this world, to uh, to teach the the shoemaker and the tailor and the uh, the um, the water carrier and the wood chopper how to. How to bring the Almighty into their day-to-day pedestrian activities? For that purpose, He has to descend from His His lofty station, and He has to figure out ways of how, in some way, to limit, to uh, distill, uh, in to uh, to to um, interpret. The, uh, the things that he has learned and that he has discovered in, uh, with parables and metaphors and, and uh, uh, all kinds of, of tools that will make what he has learned accessible. And so he says this is the object of or how we are to understand Bilaam's statement in such a way that it, it it's relevant to ourselves and uh, speaks to us in our own time. Asha, Mahazei, Shaka, Yehazei. The individual who uh, who could conceivably go off and soar into the heavens, he sees the name Shindalad Yud. He sees the fact that God limited the darkness. So that mankind would would be able to still deal with that darkness and transform it into light. And he sees that the Almighty limited things and that there is this, not only this purpose of bringing godliness into the our day-to-day lives, but that there is the power upon which he can draw to limit himself. That just as the Almighty said, shindalad Yud. As he said, die to the world, so that it would be accessible and transformable. That he can. There is also a force which is available to him to to distill, to to, to um, bring this power of die to his his own exalted understanding. Ashamarze <laughs> He sees this name, Nevel, and he deliberately. And intentionally descends from his high and lofty position, ugluye noyim, and he reveals these secrets to the eyes of all of the the lesser scholars and the simpler folk, so that they too can have some portal, some access, some approach to these lofty truths. That's that's how. What advice the um, the Degel gives to the uh, to the Rebbe to the uh, to the Torah scholar. Uh, needless to say, it's it's really the obligation of every teacher and every parent that while uh, we may want to um, go off. And, uh, and be stimulated by the kinds of things which interest us, which fascinate us, uh, it's, it's obligatory upon us that we do the very same thing. That we have to find ways to interpret the things that inspire us, and that we learn and, and, uh, and are so fascinating to us, we have to find ways of distilling it and bringing it down to the level of our children. Uh, whether they're young children or they're older children that we need to, to be a conduit of the things that we learn which our maturity and our own knowledge allows us to understand on a higher level that we're obligated to, to make it accessible to um, to our children or our students um, in uh, this week's sedra in Parsha Massey in the, um, the Degel makes the following observation. Let me just read to you from the, uh, the text first so that you can see what he's addressing. The beginning of the, of, of the second of the Sedras that we're going to be reading this Shabbos, Pasha Samaseh deals with all of the journeys of the Jews from the time they left Egypt until the time that they came to the edge of the land of Canaan into which they were to uh, pass under the leadership of Yahshua. And all in all, there are 42 stations, 42 times different places where they camped in the desert. And uh, they are all listed by name. In the second pasuk, in the second verse of of Parshas Samasi, it says as follows, And Moshe wrote, Meitzah Ahem lamasehem. their their uh, points of departure, their um going out to their journeys. Now notice Meitzah Ahem, their going out precedes the journeys. Which makes sense. Um recorded uh Every place that they left and where they went, al pi according to the 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 word of God, and then goes on to concludes the mas ehem l'meitz ehem, and these are their journeys according to the places from which they they left the uh, from their places of origin. Now the first time it says, um according to the word of God. The second time, when he reverses the order, it does not say, "Alpi uh, by the word of God, and that's the uh, the the question or the the um, concern to which the Dago addresses himself in this uh, opening commentary to Pashas Masih. And so he begins by saying as follows. He says, I heard in the name of my grandfather, in other words, I heard from the Baal Shem Tov, that all of these 42 journeys are applicable to every single person in life. (coughs) The going out of Egypt is the the, uh, point of reference for everyone's birth. In other words, Yitzias Mitzrayim, the very first um, journey is the journey from the womb of the mother. And there are 42 phases in everybody's life. There are 42 phases that a person needs to negotiate, needs to travel through. Ostensibly, if we uh, we don't complete these, then we are compelled to uh, return and complete the journey. But he says that in everybody's life, that there are 42 stations, 42 Places that we need to move through. And um, if we address ourselves with, uh, with insight to all of these different names we will understand what these different uh, these different movements these different journeys or segments of journeys are and he, he comments uh, briefly on, on one or two parenthetically uh, it calls to mind a uh, very interesting um, anecdote about the Mendel of Etzker. This was—we're uh, still talking about the disciples of the Balshemtov in this first era of Chasidus. Uh, one of the um, great Hasidic figures he eventually ended up in Eretz Yisrael was uh, someone who could have been really the successor to the great Magid if you remember the Magid was the successor to the Baal Shem Tov and after the Magid passed away so a number of his disciples became the Hasidic leaders of different communities but one of the figures who could have really occupied the position of centrality would have been Rabbi Mendel of except that he left and he went to Eretz when Ramendula was a, a, a very young lad, he was a student of the uh, of the Maggid. Uh, it was a very a very famous story that uh, he was he was a brilliant student, and on one occasion he was very pleased with uh, the fact that he had just completed a section of study, and he he walked around. The Besa medrash very uh, full of himself, very pleased with himself, and his, his, uh, his hat was, uh, or his yamaka was kind of uh, perched on his head in a, on an angle in a, in a very uh, kind of cocky way. So the Maggid walked in and uh, observed this scene, and he said to Mendala, Mendala, He said, if a few blood of Gemara can put your yamukah at such an angle, how much would you have to learn that your yamukah should, should be altogether off your head? Uh, this uh, mandala took this very much to heart and uh, broke down weeping and ran to the door of his, of his teacher, Maggit. And uh, pounded on the door and, and screamed, uh, Rebbe, you have to help me. So the, the Maggit said to him, you know what, like, don't get bent out of shape. I'll take you with me when I go to my teacher. And so he took his disciple of Mandela, he took him as a young lad, he took him to see the Baal Shema Kodesh. So there's a whole story about that. I mean, he came to the Baal Shema, he told anyway, Moitzei um, Shabbos, after Abdullah, the Baal Shem Tov summoned the Magid and the uh, the Tehides, of whom you've already heard, both of whom you've already heard about, and uh, and Mendel. And he uh, was sitting when the uh, the uh, when the came in. He was sitting smoking his pipe. And clearly, he was kind of in another sphere. Eventually, he um, addressed this Mendel and said to him, "I want to tell you a story." And he told Mendel a story, which was a, f- a fairly lengthy story. And when he concluded, he said to him, "Remember this story because it's the story of your life." This was a was well not a story about Mendel. It was a story which whatever it was about was very symbolic. But he said to him, Remember the story, it's the story of your life, and if you understand it, then you will understand your life. The Magid and the Tailors were there. One of them commented later on that he understood the story in its entirety. The other one commented that he only understood half. And it's not clear who said what. Whether it was the Teldus understood the entirety and the Maggir understood half, or vice versa. Years later, the uh, after he had been um, a um, rabbi in the community of the Tepsk, the Mandela led... A Hasidic mission to settle in Eriststro and along the way he stopped to spend some time with um, with the Tildus, who was Rovin Pomna. interestingly enough, earlier some point earlier this gamela while he was in Vitebsk um, became very ill and lost consciousness and uh, his family was sitting around his bedside and uh, they began to uh, to cry uh, hysterically and after a short period of time he uh, came to and he said to them why are you crying they said because your your condition is worsening and we're very afraid so he said don't be afraid he said i'm going to get better so one of them had the audacity to say how do you know so he said because i remember the story which the Baal Shem told repeated to me. He says, "I I understand the story, and I know that I am only part way into the story. So there is, uh, I'm going to, I'll recover." And he did recover when he ended up in Polnoa on his way to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, the uh, Toldah said to him, um, "Reb Mendel, do you remember the story which the Baal Shem told you?" So he said, "Yes." So he said, do you know where you are in this story? So he says, I have already passed through more than half. So he said to him, are you aware that in the story that the Baal Shem Tovs spoke about the fact that you would end up in Eretz So he said, yes. So he said to him, are you also aware of the fact that he alluded in the story that on the way to Eretz you would stop in Polno? So he said, of course. He says, and this is where it's at. So, um, the um, the Bar was uh, was able to discern what these different stations were, and he, in this case, was able to to relate it to uh, to the in the form of a, of a some sort of a, a parable, which was really a description of his life. Um, but drawing upon this, the um, the Degel says the following. There were places which turned out to be um, encampments in the desert which had tragic repercussions for Claudius There was a place called Kivrais HaTava. A place where they buried the um the those who lusted Kidros comes from the word kever meaning burial or grave uh, taiva comes from the word lust appetite and there was a place in which uh, Israel complained about the fact that they they wanted uh, f- they wanted meat to eat and whatnot they were unhappy with uh, with their diet and and um, there was a uh, devastating loss of life in that place, and this was uh, a place that was called by the, the name of the tragedy, Kivrei satav Was the place where they buried uh, they buried lust. Um, so he says that in any of these places where there were tragic occurrences that in reality there were opportunities because of these very challenges to their uh, uh, to, to their spirituality that they could have turned these these challenges into Gigantic strides forward, that these were really opportunities for great progress, great advancement. Unfortunately, rather than turn them to the positive, these challenges, these tests became catastrophes. So he says as follows. That when Moshe recorded the journeys that in reality Lemitzahem, that is the way in which they emerged from God, were Lemas Ahem for the purpose of each individual or Claudius as a as a nation to grow and to 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 ascend. And that was Alpi Hashem. That was by the, by the word of Hashem. The word of Hashem, the way in which this challenge emerged from God's mouth, so to speak, were such that it was Le Moitse Ahem, it was Moitse Ahem, Le But he said, Klal Yisrael, took these, this whole thing and turned it on its ear. That rather than allow these to be a journey, they reversed it. And um, rather than having it be a victory, it was a terrible defeat. And so, Moishas really set out to record these phases by the word of God, these were intended to be journeys. In the way in which they emerged from uh, the divine, who is a perfectly good and benevolent source, but the way in which He ends up recording them is the elamasehem. These are the way in the ways in which the Israel, on a number of occasions, journeyed, which was which was really consistent with the direction or the spin that came out of Israel. And it was not the way in which God intended it. So we are to understand, by looking at, uh, at these journeys, we are to understand that each one holds a key. For a certain passage, we talk about rites de passage. There are there are different passages, there are different different um, uh, stations that we have to pass through in life, and if we look at these, and we understand that there were really opportunities over here. For example, Kivra Satava is a place where they buried those who lost it. When it could have been a place in which Israel would have decisively, decisively, have buried lust itself, and instead it ended up that uh, that lust buried them, and so that we need to uh, we need to reflect on all of these, and and um, the uh, the Dagel suggests that these are. Uh, that this is a Torah portion, which would serve each one of us as a template for us to understand where we are in our own lives and what what we need to stand up to. one more thing or not? One more? Um, I'll try to do this one rather quickly. Uh, one of the journeys that's recorded in the Tehra is Vayisumi Mora that they traveled from Mora. It was one of the earlier places that they camped um, before Matantera they they journeyed from Mora and they came to Aileen and there they found twelve springs, twelve, 12 fountains of water and seventy date palms and they camped there so the dago says as follows he said, "I heard from my grandfather, in the name of an author of a sefer called Bris Menucha, that when you see a Talmud Chacham, if you see a Torah scholar who uh, has gone rancid, that is, that they're uh, they're doing things which are are unbecoming of a." Uh, of someone who's supposed to be a Torah scholar, they're they're nasty, they're uh, they're um, insensitive, they're deceitful, whatever. If you see someone, a Torah, Talmud Chacham, who, uh, in which the Torah has not really come to fruition, it's not affected him in the right way, then you should know that um in Torah there, Torah is is symbolized by water, it's likened to water, it's one of the metaphors let every thirsty person travel to water refers to Torah, water, the Torah is is considered it's it's refreshing it's it's nurturing it's it's life giving Um, there are two kinds of water there are sweet waters and there are bitter waters and uh, the Talmud tells us that uh, we find it in, in, in a variety of different ways expressed by our sages that Torah can either be a tonic, an elixir of life, or a, or a, a virulent poison. The same Torah, the same Tsukim, the same Mishnah, the same Gemara. If you learn it in the right way, it's, a, it's an elixir of life. If you learn it in the wrong way, it is a virulent poison. And the Baal Shem says that there are sweet waters and there are bitter waters. And that if an individual um, drinks of um, the sweet waters, then um, it will lead them to Lives that are inspiring and, and pleasant and beautiful the ways of terror are tranquil and peaceful uplifting but he says if you look at those people who um, who are self-indulgent those people who, who uh, are wicked they they'll use the same texts to uh, to to try to prove that that their ways are, are appropriate. So he says it's the same Torah, but if you if you're plugged into the sweet waters, then it's it it has the it has a very salutary effect. If you you you're uh, drinking the bitter waters of of Torah, then it has a very destructive effect. So he says that uh, the, the, uh, the only guarantee here is that a person has, must have an uncompromised search for truth. Let the truth lead me wherever it does. I am willing to make every sacrifice. I am willing to surrender every personal convenience or comfort in deference to the truth. If the truth is the is the the passion of a person's life, if the truth is the is the principle which guides a person's life, then a person will be um, plugged into a person who will be drinking of the sweet waters. If a person is uh, plugged into himself and the pursuit of his own pleasures and, and conveniences and comforts, then he will twist the truth to be supportive of, of his desires and his his passions there's a rule the truth is eternal, the truth stands falsehood falsehood has no has no feet, can't stand and one of the the, uh, the interesting things that they point to is that if you look at the letters of the words referring to truth and falsehood each one of the letters of truth MS is spelled Aleph, Mem, tough. Notice that each one of those letters has two bases, has two legs. An Aleph has two legs. A Mem has two legs. The tough has two legs. The truth stands, it has two legs to stand on. Sheker is spelled Shin, Kuf, Resh. Each one of those letters has only one leg. The shin comes to a point if you write it correctly. Akuf has the, the one leg extending downward. The race has only one leg. Sheker in the leg does not have feet. It can't stand. It totters. It falls. Ultimately, it, it collapses. The patriarch of Torah, the patriarch of truth, is Yaakov. Yaakov of Vinu is the, the patriarch who is most associated with Tera and with Emes there's a verse which proclaims Titain Emes Lyakov, a tribute accord, truth to Jacob he's the patriarch of Emes and um, of Yaakov Avinu it is said because his passion and his entire being was Emes, was truth that Yaakov Avinu Lomes, that Yaakov Never died. It's a comment of our sages, Yaakov Avinolomes. And of course, the the Gemara says, well, it says that they embalmed him and that they buried him. So, um, how do you explain that? So, there's a very interesting dialogue in the Gemara about this. But the statement stands Yaakov Avinolomes. Yaakov did not die because the truth is eternal. Truth is everlasting. Truth doesn't die, falsehood dies. So he says, the Degel, basing his commentary on the uh, the Shem Tov's quote from the Sefer Bris Menucha, that, um, that if an individual wants to, in fact, um, re- redeem his life, then, Vayisu Mimara, a person must leave behind him murah, The bitter waters. The waters of falsehood. The waters which are self-serving and self-indulgent. The, the waters which twist the truth. You have, to, you have to abandon those. You have to forsake morah. You have to go to elim. And ailim, he says, is a what do we call that? Um, um, we, we, an acronym. Elim is an acronym. The letters of which spell out um, Elim is spelled Aleph Lamed Yud Mem So the Yud of Elim represents the word Yaakov The Aleph of Elim uh, refers to the word Avinu The Lamed of Elim refers to the word Lo And the Mem of Aileen refers to the word Mace, Yaakov Avinu Lomes. So he says you have to forsake Mora and you have to go to the station of the patriarch Yaakov, Yaakov Avinu Lomes. You have to go to the, to the station of, of uncompromised truth. And he says there each person will find a spring of water. Which is relevant to his soul? There were twelve springs, one corresponding to each one of the tribes, which, which was relevant to, to the to the derech to the to the uh, the soul of uh, of each one of the tribes. Vishivim tamarim, he says, those the seventy date palms refers to the innermost secrets of teira. The word sid, which ref, which refers to the secrets. Of Torah to the concealed part of Tera is uh, equal seventy. So he says there. He says each person will find his own way, and eventually it will take him and reveal to him the the secrets of Tera. And then, vayyachanu sham, their people will find life, tranquility, and peace. So again, the Degel takes this 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 seemingly Um, uh, historically oriented verse something which just tells us well they left here and they traveled there and he turns it into a a map turns it into a um, a verse which counsels us about what we each need to do if we are if we want to seek peace if we want to seek uh, tranquility in our lives if we want to seek um, uh, eternity and uh, we have to we have to know that uh, that in the, in the in the very Torah that we learn that if uh, we're looking to make ourselves to please ourselves that we can be drinking from mora, and that's not where we need to be. We need to be an Eilim where we can identify with the the ultimate and perfect truth of Torah, which alone will lead us to that which we need to know, that which will guide us. Uh, which is relevant to our neshama and eventually to the secrets of Teira, which will give us uh, eternal life and peace.